HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit michters.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. Hi, this is Joe Campanelli, the host of In the Drink. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with, can I just call you Yo Betts? Yo Betts. Yo Betts. It's like Yo Gabba Gabba, but for the wine world. Exactly. Richard Betts. Um, you know, it, it, it'd, be, it'd be a disservice to introduce you as this scratch and sniff kind of guy. And without explaining that, that sounds a little weird. <laughs> sounds kind of odd. But what I'm holding in my hands is a really fascinating book, The Essential Sc- Snatch and Sniff Guide. Scratch and Sniff Guide. That's Freudian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least I didn't say anything about my mother yet. Um, <laughs> guide to Becoming a Whiskey Know-It-All. Uh, it, it's a follow-up to one that you had done about wine. Yep. And a man coming from the wine world... Uh, it's interesting to note why this transition into whiskey. Yeah, it's, um, <clears throat> pardon me, it's what we do. We're not here to say, hey, we know more than anybody about anything, really, other than maybe having fun. Um, we do that pretty well. And with the wine book, you know, where, where I've spent a whole lot of time in my life thinking about wine, I think about how do I make the party bigger? How do you enable people? How do you make it inclusive? And when you look at wine in this country, it, you know, was, we don't have the same long tradition of consumption like they do in Europe. So it was a province of the, the white wealthy, you know, and the silly sommelier, which was an old dude in a tuxedo with a silver cup around his neck. You know, that guy sucks. No one wants to go to that guy's party. So when I got into wine and, and, and got into it in a very, very pedestrian way, you know, poured out of a pitcher into a tumbler, it's, I think that's actually the best way because it's, it's part of the whole and, and completes, completes every meal, but also, um, you know, it makes you fun and it fosters community and fosters more candid conversation and so on and so forth. And we thought, well, how do we make this better? And it's certainly not by writing another tome and about you know, any of the, there's so much great wine literature out there that I don't have anything to add to that. But um, I do have something to add 
to the party invitation, and, and that is help people understand what they like, why they like it, and therefore what to drink. You know, what's going to make them smile? And we have a methodology to do that, and it's it's um, it's a methodology that do, methodology that doesn't apply to everything, but it applies to many things, uh, such as wine, where you if you break it apart. Just like, you know, dissecting a horseshoe crab in seventh grade, you break it apart, you understand, like, what makes it tick. And in the case of wine, you can say, like, okay, um, you know, it's about grape, it's about oak, or lack thereof, you know, what you age the stuff in. And it's about place, you know, where does it come from? And those are the three major factors, right? And when you do that, and you can say, well, I like this piece, this piece, this piece, I don't like that piece, that piece, or that piece, well, then you can reassemble your dissected thing to to embody exactly the pieces you want, right? And then that's the drink that's going to make you happy. See, I want to go back for a sec because, you know, you learned this from, you know, almost a decade at uh, uh, the Little Nell in Aspen as, as a psalm yep. working on the floor. But, you know, objective and deductive reasoning. Yes. When did that come into play for you regarding wine or flavors? Yeah. Um, two places. Very specifically, it, it happened with working through the Court of Master Sommeliers program, um, and that's that's an amazing program. It's not one that that I stump for or, or stump against. It, it worked for me at the time, um, but when I when I jumped into it, I felt okay. This this is a very um, meaningful thing to me because it's not about whether I like something or not. It's it you know it's it's what makes it what it is. You know, when you look at something objectively, it's not saying, Hey, I don't like it. It's not good. No. Well, that's, that's not fair. That's all, that only matters when you're sitting down to drink yourself. And beyond that, if this is your business, you know, you, you would do your business better if you, if you can say objectively, okay, this has these flavors, this has these attributes. These are the attributes that make it what it is. These are the things that reflect the place, all the, all the, the intellectual value. And when you separate that, you, you actually have the chance to get smart and furthermore help people. And as a sommelier, you know, it's not about the superstar chef. It's absolutely not. And it's definitely not about the superstar sommelier. It's about the superstar diner. You know, we're there. Sommelier is an advocate, not an adversary. And it shouldn't even be really a, a major personality. It's someone that's there to help people who are paying to be in a place be happy, right? And when you taste objectively and you understand wines for what they are, you're able to make people happy. And while I may not have had Ron Bauer Chardonnay on the wine list at the Little Nell, if someone came in and, and wanted to, to chat about wine or maybe they didn't even know they did, but they had to like figure it out and we hand you this tome of 80 pages of stuff, you have to very gently and diplomatically get in a conversation and, and work your way to figuring out what people like. And if someone says, you know what, I really like this Ron Barrow Chardonnay, you say, that's awesome. I'm going to bring you something very, very similar to that. And the cue there is I know how much Ron Barrow costs, so I'm going to keep them mm -hmm. at or under their, their comfort zone in terms of price. I know how Rombauer tastes, and I'm going to bring them something very, very similar to it. And that, then you've just made a fan, and you and you you have a, a guest that like you're you're treating as you should treat guests, um, and that's your job to the restaurant. You know that's what you're supposed to do, and and that person's going to leave with a smile. That that's the thing, you know. So that's what objective tasting is about. It also comes from um, I spent a whole lot of time in school and then grad school. Uh, in heart sciences and did a, did a graduate thesis in paleofluvial morphology. And what's, what that is really about is understanding the scientific method, you know, how to be a researcher, how to understand the difference between data and dogma, which I still harp on today, really with, uh, you know, a, a great model in wine, Terry Layton. Um, if any of you guys know Kalen, that guy's smartest guy in the business period. 
at least in terms of the science and the bugs and marshalling the good bugs. Terry's very, very, very special. And when you really understand what all the pieces are, you, you stand a chance of, of improving your own work, right? And that I think that that's what all of us wake up every day to do is like, okay, I really like what I'm doing or I liked what I did yesterday. How do I make it better? Or what are the challenges I faced and how do I deal with those? And you deal with those by making honest observations and controlling the variables and, you know, without sounding too scientific or geeky about it, if you don't know where you stand you don't have any way to improve, right? You know, it's it's interesting to note, though, you made that leap from, you know, a taster to a maker. You you have My Essential Wine. Yep. Uh, Well, Your Essential Wine, which is called My Essential Wine. And there there are three, I believe. There's a California Red. Mm -hmm. There is a Provence uh, Rosé. Yep. And then there is your Bordeaux uh, scent. Exactly. Gling Ling. And a brand new project, which we're just launching now, myself and... and, uh, fiance Carla Rozuski, we're launching um, something called an approach to relaxation. Yeah. We're making a single red wine in uh, Vinevale in Australia, and it's the sexiest, prettiest, silkiest thing I've ever been a part of. Yeah. It's very exciting. I mean, to, to go from that, you know, reasoning that we initially talked about, objective and subjective, mm-hmm. or objective and deductive, um, how do you become a maker? Yeah. You, well, you have to, you have to figure out when, when is it important to be subjective and when is it important to be objective? When, when it comes to making your own hooch, you have to be subjective because look, if you guys don't drink it, I don't care. I'm going to drink it all. And, and that's how you, I, that's not only like a good way to live. It's how you start a good business in, in my esteem because you really might not like it, <laughs> you know? Um, we've been very fortunate that our aesthetic is shared by many and, and things do find an audience, but you have to be prepared for them, them not to. And you know what? I don't, you know what? I, I, I don't make Malbec because I don't like Malbec. I think it's kind of, gr- I mean, it's just not my thing. Good for the people that love it and good for the people that drink it. I don't, I don't love it. And if you did, if I made one and you didn't like it, well, I'm going to be sitting there looking at a, a pile of wine. I don't want to drink. And that's boring. So you start with the very subjective um, and then hopefully, you know, so that's, that's the enthusiasm curve. And I talked about the intersection, intersection of enthusiasm and opportunity. And so that's, I'm enthusiastic about this and you see where does it intersect opportunity. And in the case of this, um, well, there's tons of opportunity because we found a place that has exactly the grapes we like in a place where nobody cares about them. So it's very easy to get started, you know, if, if you're willing to, to take the leap, um, in terms of going from being a psalm to being a producer, that's a that's a very. Um, I actually think we're at an advantage coming to it. If you are a sommelier that's tasted a lot of wine, and I think that I think that's actually a big key in being a good sommelier. Being a sommelier is being a host for your guests, but it's also you know having the knowledge to be able to host your guests. So that requires real context. And if you've had the chance, and this is harder and harder every day, like I know wine's more and more expensive and it's more and more rare and there are so many obstacles, but if you've had the chance to taste the great wines of the world, you know what's great. And then you know why they're great. And I don't mean just because like someone decided it should cost a lot of money. Like why, so for in my particular instance, I love Chateau Reyes. Right, it's Chateauneuf de Pop. I think is the apogee of apogee of wine period in southern France, and it happens the way it happens um, in large. You know, there are many pieces that make it what it is, but for sure we can't ignore the fact that it is Grenache. It is grown on sand, 
Um, and the and the sand is a buttonhole in Chateauneuf. Basically, nobody has any except for their neighbor Vaudu has a tiny little bit, but it's not the, the sum of their production. And so you're like, okay, I know what makes Chateau Reyes great. And then you can you can reconstruct it in other ways instead of like, oh, you know, I'm in whatever, wherever you may be, you know, I'm going to be in Greenland making Grenache, and I'm going to make it like Reyes. Well, you know, you're not because you don't you don't have those fundamental pieces. And, and frankly, I can go to a book to figure out the sulfur edition. Like, I can't do a sulfur edition in my head. I have to look at it, or I have to have help. And I'm happy to admit that. That's not the magic. You know, that's the easy part. That's what a, It's like the manual to your DVD or whatever it is. It's meaningful, but it's, but it's not... Um, it's, it's not uh, what's the right word? It's, it's not special. It's meaningful, but not special. But understanding like what makes things tick, that's special. See, I think what's really fascinating about you writing this book is that you are coming from both sides, yeah. you know, as the psalm and as a producer, as you said, yeah. and that reasoning has really uh, developed itself again, like you had mentioned into this methodology, which is so smart for someone who enjoys whiskey, tastes whiskey, um, but also may want to make whiskey too. Yeah. So that's, and that's what thing. I kind of walked away from it. Not just that, Oh, I scratched, I sniffed. Oh yeah. Maybe I like a, you know, scotch barrels a little bit. I like a little more peat. No, I'm yeah. like, well, Maybe I should be making whiskey myself. Which, I love that. Uh, my wife may damn you for that because I have enough <laughs> projects at the house. But we're actually going to take a quick break, come back, and start scratching and sniffing away. Let's do it. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Michter's Distillery. Visit Michter's.com to find out how their taste is everything, cost be damned, Attitude is creating some of the finest whiskeys available. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkale. Here, you hear that? Scratching and sniffing away with Richard Betts, the essential scratch and sniff guide to becoming a whiskey know-it-all. Um, you know, and we were talking about you coming from both sides as now, you know, uh, a psalm and as a producer. Um, and what is fascinating about this book is there is nothing layman about it, even though it is illustrated in this fantastical manner that is yeah. almost like childlike whimsy, yeah. um, which I think a lot of people should approach whiskey in, in the same way rather totally. than in, in this complexity of trying to figure out the label and where everything's from. Like, yep. yeah, you can get to the story, but get down to what you like first. Absolutely. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? No one tells you who to vote for. No one told you what to have for breakfast. No one tells you how to have your hamburger cooked. So why would you let someone tell you what to drink, right? They're all matters of taste and belief. So I have to say, and this isn't necessarily a popular opinion uh, amongst some of my friends, but I don't, I don't, in this day and age, I don't think a critic has mattered less. And I'm so excited about that, that we are not just going to like hand over our, our matter of taste to somebody else to say, Oh, you should drink this. Okay, great. Because what that means is, I mean, we all know how different taste is, but what if you, you pick up something that some you, you think you're supposed to drink and you don't like it? Well, you might think, well, whiskey's not for me or wine's not for me. 
and for Richard Betts, that's a supremely sad moment. Yeah. Like, no, 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 it is for you. There yeah. are tons of great shit. Like, but let's just figure out like what you like. And I mean, so you blind tasted over five hundred different whiskeys. We did this book. Absolutely. So there must have been some horrible things. There were indeed some horrible <laughs> things, and they're not on the wheel. That's yeah. why there are three hundred on the wheel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so did that inform you differently from tasting wine? I mean, yes, both things have tannins. But, I mean, what what are the similarities and differences in how you approach tasting these two things? Okay, in terms of how you taste them, there's no difference at all. Um, it's about being objective. It's Again, it's not what I like or what Carla liked who tasted with me and all these things. It's about a, a certain set of standards. Like, is it balanced? Right, that you can be objective about that, and if the thing just you put it in your mouth and just feels like a bunch of alcohol or a bunch of tannin, and it doesn't have any other pleasure principle, then you know it's not balanced, and so we're not going to consider it. Everything on the wheel in the book, that's in, there are three hundred of them included in the book, you know, at least pass that first test, and then it's about levels of complexity. Like you and I can shoot something at the end of the night and get, and you know, we might even have a supreme buzz on, but we're going to figure out what Jack Daniels is about. It's it doesn't demand a lot of you it's very accommodating it's actually delicious and well-made um you know great tennessee whiskey right but the the whole idea is that as you go on you and i are not going to be shooting lafroig 30 which is super complex and has a lot to say and actually grabs you by the throat and says pay attention you know and so it's a matter of separating those things and understanding the gradations of okay super cheerful you could mix it, you could sip it, you could shoot it to, you know what, you should probably sip this. You know what, this really requires a lot of your attention. And so those are, those are the criteria. But the biggest difference between wine and whiskey is that with wine, it le- we lead you to um, a category. Like just to refresh, you answered three questions at the back of the wine book. Uh, a fruit question, a wood question, an earth question that told you what to drink. So if you said to me, I love red fruits. I love oak. I'm cool with American oak because I like dill and I like it earthy. Well, it would point you to Rioja. So drink Rioja. But I could say, you know what, drink whatever it is, you know, Cune 94 Grand Reserve or Castillo Gay 15. Well, I mean, what is the whiskey equivalent to those answers, too? Well, that, that gets to the fundamental difference between being a wine producer and a spirits producer is that Cune is going to make different Rioja every single year, whereas Lafroig 10 has to be Lafroig 10. Mm-hmm. And so where we can't name names in the wine book, we do name names in the whiskey book because that's the reality of the spirits business, is that if you're a Lafroig drinker, you know what Lafroig tastes like. And if it tastes different the next time you go buy it, you're, you're <laughs> bummed. Yeah. Yeah, you know? You're disheveled. It's like, hey, wait, what? what? Like, true north isn't true north. So anymore. it's almost an easier introduction in dr- drinking than wine ever will be. For sure. And For sure. the way you broke down this book, too, with grain, wood, and place, I mean, yeah. those are the three signifiers. That's it. That's how it works. Those are the three things that almost or are almost entirely responsible for responsible for making a whiskey taste the way it does before we jump into those three things what is the difference between you know uh, smell perception and taste perception well we taste only sweet sour salt bitter and umami right Isn't that, i think those are the five umami if we're lucky allegedly everything else we think we taste we're actually smelling so when you say oh i taste strawberries like you don't really taste strawberry you perceive the sweetness and you perceive the acidity on your tongue is, is a physical thing, tactile thing. But those aromas, those are all olfactory things happening in this retronasal area. And so you're actually only smelling that. You know, if you, they say, if you hold your nose, um, or pardon me, you smell an orange and bite a lemon, you're going to, you're going to perceive that you're eating an orange. It's because it's based on what you actually smell as opposed to what you taste. 
So, so taste is actually smell. And that's why these books work in the first yeah, place. Yeah. If that weren't true, I would have nothing to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, what's amazing, again, is that you really distill these things down, not to use that, that's you know, that uh, whiskey it. term, per se, um, down to those three very easy things. And yeah. let's dissect those a little further. Okay. Grain is very simple. I mean, th- there is a plethora, but there's only a handful that are actually used. Exactly. I mean, whiskey is just distilled beer. And that's shocking to a lot of people, right? And so... What do you make the beer from? Well, you make it largely from malted barley if you're in Scotland or Japan, corn, rye, and wheat if you're in other parts of the world, and that's it. But the way you make that beer and the ingredients of that beer do affect the final flavor of the whiskey, so that's point one. Wood, new versus old. 100%. So if you're making bourbon, you know, you've got to use 100% new charred oak barrels, American oak, that has a really strong flavor. Um, and we can we can name that flavor and identify it. And you can say, you know what, I like it, in which case, okay, keep on the bourbon path. Or I don't like it, in which case, get off it. You look to things like um, scotch production or uh, Japanese whiskey production, and they, they don't use char or typically do not use charred new American oak barrels. Instead, they use used barrels. And so it may have a little bit of a bourbon character, but it's still very much about itself. And that and, is place right there. And that's place, Exactly. Or they might use used sherry barrels or so on and so forth. And just when you put it in a barrel, you're not done. Then it has to age. And so where it ages matters enormously. You know, if you're in a warm rickhouse or, you know, an aging, a barrel aging warehouse in Kentucky, it's a whole set of climatic circumstances that greatly affect the final whiskey and it's hot. So the whole thing proceeds very, very quickly, you know, on a relative scale. Whereas if you're in a warehouse on the seaside in Isla or Scotland somewhere, it's cold, it's damp, and it takes a whole lot longer to achieve that same level of patina. And while you're there, you pick up all kinds of other flavors like the ocean, like the fires burning around you. And that sounds kind of obtuse, but I would just ask all of you listening, like, remember the last time you were in a restaurant where they were just frying food and you walked out of there and you smelled like the fryer? Or even worse, like last time you were in Ponches in Napa Valley or any of these bars that still allow you to smoke and you walk out and the next morning your clothes still smell like shit. (laughs) It's the exact same thing. You know, the whiskey picks up the flavors and smells of of where it sits around. Well, I mean, even going to a seaside, you know, cafe and you you get that drift of salt air coming into your nose while you're eating whatever. I mean, I was scratching and sniffing the iodine slash ocean one, and I said, oh, wow, this really does smell like that. Having never been to Scotland, uh, I I do know that that, that scent. Yep, absolutely. Could be the Oregon coast or, you know, where there's no whiskey of of any meaningful volume made, but it has that oceanic thing, and that's the point. And if you love that, well, then tap into whiskeys made in a place like that. Yeah, I mean, what do you love right now? Do you have, did you define your go-to whiskeys out of going through this process? Oh, totally. So last summer when we had these hundreds and hundreds of bottles on the floor of our very small apartment and you had to like be careful not to trip over them, it was, we got smart for the book. We also got smart for ourselves. You know, we, we, we did apply the subjective part to our own drinking. And so we saved about a hundred bottles, um, of everything we loved. There are no Canadians in there. No offense to the Canadians, just not my shizzle. Um, but we saved a lot of scotch, a lot of scotch from the islands, and a lot of Japanese whiskey. So I, I really love those like detailed, subtle, oceanic things and things that have you know the perfume and incense and at least an idea of, of umami and saltiness. Like those, those are captivating to me. Yeah, I, well, I also think you like uh, smoke 
because you are a mezcal maker as well. Ooh. So you might tend towards that PD. I absolutely do. Yeah. Tell me about your mezcal and, you know, h- how that may differ or be very similar to tasting whiskey. Yeah. It's, um, I, you know, I couldn't be more excited about what we're doing with Sombra Mezcal these days. It's, it's a joy when we're, we're 10 years in, um, 2016 will mark Sombra's 10th anniversary. And when we started, it was us and, you know, one other brand really Del McGay doing the thing. And, and now, and it wasn't a category. Now it's actually a measured thing, uh, which is very, very cool. And for us, it means, um, it's, a, you know, it's validation that, that your insanity is, is actually, you know, not so insane. And so with that, we're, I couldn't be more stoked to say we are building, um, three distilleries, in Mexico, two of them very, very small, and one of them fashioned um, after technology that's 600 years old, and one of them that I think will actually be super meaningful and important for the whole of mezcal production um, in as much as you take the pieces of tradition that work and you take the pieces of tradition that aren't so much tradition, it's just we didn't have an opportunity to do better. Like, where do you throw things away? Right? It's a really simple. Well, we don't just throw them in the street anymore, right? And, and it's... And that's not to say things get thrown in the street in in, um, Oaxaca and mezcal production, but there are places where we can just be, all of us as an industry can do better uh, for the planet. And uh, we're going to be the first people to really explore that in Oaxaca. Um, We should be open in early January. And I could not be more excited about it. That's awesome. It's really awesome. You know, with this book, uh, what's wonderful is that I could see a lot more editions coming out. Totally. And I'm only hoping that uh, Tequila and Mezcal One also elevates the status of what that spirit can be going forwards. But, you know, this is a visual show, and I just must mention a couple things. Crystal English Saka and Wendy McNaughton, who did your art direction, design, and illustrations. Yes. Made this a complete package. Made this one of the best tickets to the best parties ever. I love that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, working with those two is a huge joy. And it's about, like any good partnership, it's about complementary skill sets. And, you know, I spit this this idea about, I, out, like, okay, this is what whiskey's about. And then Crystal takes it and is like, you know what? It's, that's really interesting, but it only makes sense if we lay it out this way. If we put the words physically in these places, if you maybe reword that, if we illustrate it like this... And I mean, her part's the genius part. And then Wendy takes that package and then illustrates the stuff. And her hand is amongst the most beautiful out there. I mean, it's really compelling um, and very unique. And so the three of us, it's this, it's, it couldn't be a more, um, more joyous partnership. I said, well, I couldn't be happier having this in front of me and scratching and sniffing away. Thank you. Um, everyone should go out and get the essential scratch and sniff guide to becoming a whiskey know-it-all, as well as the wine one, Richard Banks. Richard Betts, Thank thanks you. so much for being on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Cheers.